Good morning. Is it time for the bed hat to make a comeback, perhaps bathed in the flattering, gentle glow of a candle? It might come to it yet, because this week saw the frighteners being put on all of us with price hikes all over the shop, but particularly in the area of energy, oil, gas, electricity. And all of that thrown into sharper relief at the end of the week with the hand of Vladimir Putin hovering over the Russian oil and gas levers. Because if he turns it off, well then where are we? Here's Arthur Beasley, current affairs editor with the Irish Times with Claire yesterday. Well, most of our gas imports come from Norway via the British energy system. But if the supply of Russian energy into Europe were to be stopped or interrupted, even in a small way, well, then it would have a very considerable impact on the price of gas and the price of oil. And uh, consumers, people are already seeing that in their electricity bills and in their gas bills, even as we speak. That would be a very, very considerable shock. And even if there was no doubt over short-term supplies into Ireland's energy network, the price would rocket even to a greater extent than we're already seeing. Right, we've already had plenty of shocks on that front. Oh my. And add into that disruption of grain supplies, which may in turn lead to an interruption of food supplies. We could be in a pickle. Also on the line was investment analyst Justin Urquhart-Stewart. And he said that all of this might undermine the one thing which keeps economies rolling. Confidence. If you don't have confidence, people don't spend. Companies don't invest. And if that happens for any length of time, especially with inflation, you have this thing called stagflation, a stagnant economy with inflation. It's very difficult to shake off. And of course, if people are losing their confidence and you have two quarters of shrinking economy... That's a recession, and I'm afraid that's something that the whole of Europe is probably going to be looking at this year. Yes, and that word has been rattling around this week. We've tried we've tried to ignore it, Justin, but it keeps uh, cropping up. And as we wait to see what happens with this energy situation with Russia, is it likely then that states and individuals will start stocking up on fuel? Almost certainly, yes. I mean, no one, we've never ever used that awful phrase of actually stockpiling, uh, because as soon as you do that, everyone rushes off to go and buy loo rolls or whatever it happens to be that they're frightened of. But it is inevitable. But it's going to be very difficult for, if everyone tries to do that. So the will, the, could there be rationing? Yes, there could. Uh, there will be also encouragement to maybe use more nighttime uh, periods when there's less uh, demand on the system, and you can often have cheaper uh, production of, uh, of energy at that stage. Uh, but it's going to have to uh, be operated very carefully, because the more you constrict the economy uh, by putting those uh, tighteners in, then the more you're going to actually increase the opportunity of the economy slowing down and having a weaker uh, uh, year financially. And of course, this isn't just affecting governments, it affects companies, but of course, it's at the end of it, us at the food chain, at the bottom of the food chain is the consumer, and particularly the weakest, those who've retired, maybe on fixed income, and of course, those on poorer income levels, they're the ones that need the most hope. So commodity prices rising, that's baked, uh, bread, pasta, all those elements. Fuel prices, so you have to choose then, am I going to put the, the heating on or not at what level? This is going to be a year of the squeeze and it's going to be a very painful one. Ooh, not what we want to hear. And all week long there was talk about prices, savings and getting value for money. On Monday's drive time, one particular receipt for €45 Euro for three scones with tea and coffee from a swanky hotel, well, viral it went, prompting consternation and some texting one-upmanship. 
A listener says, for three poached eggs and two cups of tea, I paid 51 euro in a Kilkenny hotel. Uh, Cormac Ireland says, Maeve, it's too expensive. We booked our nine-day August trip to Spain in January. It cost an absolute fortune, even though we're not staying in a five-star place. Everything has gone through the roof, so it's key to book well in advance. Otherwise, it's a case of Dick Turpin's highway robbery. Noreen in Galway says, wages in Ireland are among the highest in Europe. Irish people want the high wages, also want the same prices as people pay in Spain. We can't have high wages and low prices, so Irish people need to join the dots. A listener says, unfortunately, Rip Off Ireland is alive and well. I noticed that in our local hotel, the coffee is the same price, but the cups got smaller. Shock, awe and outrage. However, for a slightly more nuanced perspective on the gold-plated scone and beverage bill that had prompted all this, Paula Canila, travel editor of the Irish Independent, joined Cormac. It's an interesting one, and, and there's memes flying already, by the way. I saw someone tweeting that you wouldn't want to, to tell Will Smith the price of his scones. Um, but it is, I think it's a good debate here. I'm not going to defend that price of scones. But let me just give you a slight bit of devil's advocating yeah. here. Hotels are also dealing with rising costs. There's an there's a Irish Hotels Federation conference going on at the moment. They're saying their, ES, their electricity bills are up 88%. Staff wages are up, hard to find staff. Insurance bills, you've done countless items on. Fuel and on and on. And they're desperately trying to find ways to recover from what we've just been through in terms of a pandemic without going out of business. So I just want to put that other side of the story out there. Yeah. And I, I reiterate, I'm not defending the And look, you don't have to buy those scones. You can vote with your feet. But what we need to do is get the, the blooming balance right. Ireland is not... Spain. It's not a cheap country, but it doesn't have to be an Oslo or a Reykjavik either. You know, we really need to keep punters on side as we try and recover tourism-wise yeah. and help people to understand why does it cost that. And I'd love to see a picture of those scones. And they may be the fanciest scones known <laughs> to humanity. And there might be a wonderful room in which they're served and beautiful five-star service. So in which context. case you could start to contextualise yeah, the yeah, premium. Yeah, I understand. Ooh, what price the plump cushion. But everyone is looking to save a buck and stretch what money they do have. On Wednesday, enter with his calculator and some tough love, financial planner Owen McGee. So I wanted to see if I could sit down and identify €2,000 worth of savings in the space of an hour. And I had a couple of rules for myself, so I took... A fictitious couple based in Nace, living in Nace. They've got a house worth €320,000. They've got a car. They've got all the usual household bills. And I wanted to see, without using any of my knowledge or expertise of the financial world, and without any using any of the tools that are available to me as a financial planner, I wanted to see, could I just use the internet and put my bills together and say, okay, what can I save? Where can I save money? By looking through my bills and trying to work it out. I chose €2,000, Claire, because there was a report out last week that says as a result of inflation, the cost of running an average house has gone up by €2,000. So I wanted to see if we could win any of that back. So how did did you get on? Did you get the 2000 back? 
we, let's not just build up to this. Let's just throw it out there. We, I managed to save €6,282. I identified savings across lots of different areas. Now, I will jump in and say the biggest saving was on the mortgage. Now, that's a serious amount of money. And if Owen McGee thought he was home and dry, just blithely throwing that one out, he had not counted on Stickler Byrne and her forensic accounting questions. And what Which I was you can't able, do in, in 60 minutes. You can't change can't, the mortgage well, in 60 minutes. Well, remember, remember my rules. I, I made the rules here, Claire. You didn't. So I made the rules. My <laughs> rules were all I, all I had to do was identify the savings. I don't need to execute them because it's impossible to do it, to okay. do, do that much in the 60 minutes. So I identified it. And the dearest to the cheapest mortgage, this person is an average mortgage, the dearest to the cheapest mortgage, you can save €2,700 in year one. All right. Okay? Now I've identified another problem here because you've picked the dearest, the most expensive bills you know, the outlay at the most expensive and you reduced it to the least expensive, right? So that mightn't work for everybody who's looking at trying to do this. And thankfully, I was able to take a fictitious couple and you're absolutely right. I am cherry picking here, but the point of this is not to say, I want to show the vast difference for people. I want to show if you just take the first offer, you may be the most expensive offer that you're going to get. Yes. So you need to look at what's available to you. And the reality is, is, those ex- most expensive offers, whether it's gas or electricity or mortgages, there are customers out there who take them. And if you are one of them, this is the, these are the types of savings. And let's face it, yes, I am going from the highest to the cheapest, but I tripled my target. I saved over 6,000 euros when I wanted In to fairness, save 2,000 euros. We'll give yes. you that. We'll give you that one. Yeah. Grudgingly, mind you. But where did he make savings? It was on car and house insurance and, yes, energy the old shop around. But bear in mind all of this before the announcements from Electric Ireland and SSE Electricity of price hikes. But more money-saving tips from Santa Sogara, a.k.a. the Caribbean dub, who was on with Ryan. She had gotten herself out of some serious debt by budgeting and is now something of an Instagram money-saving guru. For me, when I first started, it was for accountability. I was sharing so people would hold me to it. I'm not going to spend. I told you I'm not going to do this. And I didn't. And look what happened. And people saw it. And so many people have really implemented this into their life. But now what I'm doing, I kind of feel like I'm the old, I'm the old, you know. You're the mentor now. Yeah, I'm the mentor. You're like a financial Yoda. (laughs) Spend money, you won't. Uh, As sitting there advising, you know, in the forest, they come and say, where is the the Santas? She is there among the trees. She's hiding. She's hiding. (laughs) The little glow of wisdom. Anyway, so I went off on one there. Come on, Ryan, focus. Back on message, he asked her this. What area of of spending needs most scrutiny as far as you're concerned? I feel you start with the four walls and try and cut them back. Your food budget, be very conscious of that. And another way of doing that is waste. Yeah. We waste so So much much food food. waste. I think I was researching it and it was 700 euro a year. The average family throws out. Now, with inflation, that's going to cost us an extra 1,300. So if we even focus on halving our food waste we could pull back 350 but no one you know? in, no one intends to waste food no isn't that the thing and you, no one likes it you, you buy a sliced pan and suddenly before you know it it's, it's five days later <laughs> yeah. it's going green you're, you're saying well I, I didn't I thought I might use yeah. it but, and then suddenly you're in the brown bin going there it goes yeah well I'd say meal plan it's not something that your nanny says or your mom says oh you need to meal plan if you're a busy person you need to meal plan you know you bought you bought the bread 
So you need to be having sandwiches. You have to use that bread up. I'm not loyal to any supermarket. I'm not loyal to anybody. I'm loyal to getting the best deal from me and my family. And Ryan referenced that very Irish obsession with the immersion. There's a whole generation of people who grew up with their fathers and mothers saying, shut the door yeah. in that room. Yeah. The heat gets out. Shut the door in the room. Don't leave the immersion on. Or yeah, else we're we all, know the immersion. We've got to sell the house if you leave the immersion on for an hour and a half. Or even simple things as having your couch up against the radiator. And the radiator is there to heat the room, but it's heating the back of the couch. And few things gives Santa's more pleasure than looking through receipts. I like to scan my receipt. I like to keep tabs. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm scared. Um, If I was a supermarket (laughs) owner today, I'd be going, oh, no, here's Santa. No, no, I have, have, I'm I'm wise. (laughs) You're wise to it all. I know. But but would you compare this week's receipt to last week? Is that why you keep them and go, hang on a second? Yeah, I like to to know. For me, because I'm a natural spender, I need to turn that upside down and have like, I'm very competitive. So it's like, okay, I actually beat last week. I did all right. And we're all good. Everybody's happy. My kids, they got what they want. I got what I want and we're good. So every week I try to keep it and it keeps me accountable as well. Santa's O'Gara with Ryan. And if you thought tallying your receipts was only the height of crack, hold on to yourself for this next one. Hypermiling. Huh? Hypermiling. Ray, running up a hill on just black tea and stale bread? Not quite, but not far off it either. It's a US term, so basically it's maximising every every portion of energy you can get out of a gallon of fuel. That is Fergal McGrath, who holds five Guinness World Records in hypermiling. And this is what you need to do. Most of your fuel is spent if you drive, accelerate harshly and brake harshly. So if you don't anticipate the road ahead. And I think an awful lot of people could... Not hypermile, but at least save quite a lot of fuel just by anticipating the road ahead and, you know, judging how the traffic light might change or judging how the roundabout, how you might feed into or flow through a roundabout. So, so yeah, and also if you could reduce your speed a little bit, I mean, the, the fuel savings are, are immense. And another new term. Light feet. Yeah, yeah. So basically, don't stamp on the accelerator or the brake. You know, a lot of people are just just treat them as on-off switches. But, um, you know, just just basically feather the car along and you'll, you'll end up getting there close to the same time anyway. Just have light feet, you know, just be careful with what you're doing and, okay. and you'll find the fuel savings are, are, are huge. Oh, in fairness, that is very interesting. That was Fergal McGrath with Ray. So steady as she goes. Or cycle. And you could certainly do some hypermiling if you're heading up certain Mayo Mountains. You are really in the gang if you say the reek. I climb in the reek tomorrow, and they go, "Oh, you know it then." But if you say I'm climbing Crowpatrick, you're a blower. We'll give you dispensation for the day that is in it, and if you are climbing with Charlie, best of luck. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Now, while the Oscar story most people were obsessed with was that slap, Liveline predictably took a different approach. Because, you see, the Best Picture Award had gone to family drama CODA, the acronym for Children of Deaf Adults. And Joe, helped by sign language interpreters, opened the lines to members of the deaf community and their families. On Wednesday, Avil phoned in and she talked about learning that her new baby Zeb is profoundly deaf. 
Yeah, to be honest, I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was, I was devastated about the, ta- the time. I suppose I had been through a hard road to get to that point, and mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, it was just, I suppose, the utter shock and and just not having any kind of experience, you know, um, with the deaf community. I, it was just a complete fear of the unknown. Um, so I was, I just, you know, had all these things, you know, came into my head. You know, I'm a big a big music lover like I lived yeah. in Nashville Tennessee for many years and oh. I was big into country music <laughs> randomly and I, I you know that was my first thing god will he ever appreciate music or um, mm. all of these these different thoughts came into my head so it was really difficult at the time um but again it was really just because I didn't have the experience and it was just such an mm. unknown for me and my family you know um, which is what I suppose was the fear in a sense more than anything else Also on the line was Wesley, and with the help of his sign language interpreter, Joanna, they both got to grips with hearing aids. How does the baby manage with with hearing aids? Does he not take them out? really good I you know okay. I have to say he's he's been great you know because I, I I know it, it, it so it must be so frustrating for little babies just not knowing what's on their head and I suppose the sensation of having something and um, he wears a little band that kind of holds the hearing aids in oh, place okay. um so in fairness he, he's great you know the odd time when he's a bit mad or something he might just reef them out of his ears but from the most part he, he is great so um yeah so doing the sign language Wesley and, Wesley you're laughing and I think the reason you're laughing is, I'm trying to remember, did your mother tell me that you used to take the hearing aids out and throw them in the fire? That's right. You, you brat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, and myself, I have four children. OK. Um, three are coder. Children and have one. My deaf, my, I have a deaf daughter, she's age three. I'm sure, Avril, you, 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 you might find it overwhelming. I certainly found it overwhelming when I realised we have a deaf daughter because I've been through your situation. You know, as deaf parents, it was still a shock for us that we have a deaf daughter and we wanted to make sure we were doing it right. We had so many questions. It was new to us, you know, it's a very similar boat to yourself, you know, and talking about hearing aids, mm-hmm. Rosie's always throwing her hearing aids off, you know, we reinforce, look, you've got to put them on, but yeah. as you know, I was the same myself, Joe. I know you were. <laughs> I always throw them away, especially when angry. <laughs> yeah, but you know, in time, hopefully but... he'll get used to putting them on and leaving them on. <laughs> From Liveline. Stephen James Smith is a performance poet and See No Evil is his debut album. He came into Sean and talked about the writing of the song I've Had Lovers. There is a real sense in that uh, poem, that piece, that, that there was some kind of watershed moment when you kind of, <laughs> when you mm. drew a line literally mm. in the sand and said, All right, you know something, I, I need some kind of change here. When was that poem written? When uh, Approximately uh, four or five years ago. Um, and I guess after the end of a relationship and I sort of, I felt I was maybe ready for something more serious and, and, and long term or something. And that's uh, flicked a switch in my brain a little bit. Um, yeah, so that's, but it actually came from, to be honest, it's funny, I wrote it really quickly. I, I woke up one morning in, in, in bed and uh, I had this line, I've had lovers um, and I've had loves. And I, I said to myself, I can't get out of the laba, out of the scratcher until I've actually finished 
this thought because you know the, the danger is you can get ideas and you don't elaborate upon them but I just felt this energy in the moment and I, and I wrote it then and there I've had lovers and I've had loves but when I love again I will love like Michael Fury is it unrealistic to love like a fictional character that's been conjured up in the mind of Jimmy a young traveller who serenaded his love in the dead of winter, his lungs frozen with the snowy song of ache, unable to rest with the yearning to proclaim. I want to proclaim all my love with fury. I'm done with tepid encounters. Sparks and dying embers only warm the souls in passing. Flames can only extinguish lost feelings burning me up. Let's not insult each other with kind kisses. Let's tear out our hearts or nothing at all. Stephen James Smith as heard on Arena. The war in Ukraine continues, and the city of Mariupol in particular has been devastated, with an estimated 160,000 people trapped in the city. Efforts are underway to evacuate people by bus, but this is far from a straightforward operation. Earlier in the week, Mykola Trofimenko, rector of Mariupol State University, spoke to Drive Time about how he and his family had managed to escape the city. Tell me what happened to the cars that were uh, draped in white ribbons uh, with the words children marked on them. What happened to them? We we wrote these inscriptions to children and uh, put white ribbons uh, uh, on the doors of the car to show that... uh, we have children, children actually. We ask not to shoot. The uh, bridge uh, in front of us it was broken. Ukrainian National Police helped these uh, columns of cars to cross the minefields, uh, to cross them safely, actually. And uh, we saw a couple of cars that, uh, that were hit by bombs on these uh, minefields. The regular, regular cars. Uh, that were going and trying to escape from this dangerous situation. And uh, when we get, when we, we got uh, to the other bank, uh, uh, on the other side of this broken bridge, uh, we were standing in the line waiting uh, to get to through Ukrainian checking point. And uh, uh, the Russians started to bomb our peaceful cars with the white ribbons, with the bomb-throwing machines, and uh, they hit one of the cars, 10 cars from me, actually. It was 10 cars from my car. What was that My like? car jumped. It's a terrible, actually, uh, feeling uh, when you don't know what, what to do, to, to take your child and to go outside of the car, or you should be inside. It's a, I don't know, it's a issue of luck. If you are lucky, you will not be hit by, by the bomb. I had my wife, my son, my mother-in-law, my dog, my little dog inside 
in the car. And while talks lurched on throughout the week in Istanbul, without, it must be said, much progress, from the point of view of the Russian military, this war has not gone according to plan. That is the sound of Russian army radio communications. And Christian Trebert is a New York Times journalist who has analysed that audio. He spoke to Sarah. What we're hearing on this specific clip is a, um, a call sign, a Russian call sign, uh, saying that he urgently needs uh, refueling uh, water and food. And he's asking basically for help, like he's running out of supplies. And um, it's it's one of the many, many radio fragments that was uh, basically radio hobbyists were able to intercept and that we analyzed and verified that shows like, among other things, that Russian troops in Ukraine are struggling with getting supplies like fuel, like water, like food, as this uh, guy was saying on the radio. And this and similar audio has been recorded by amateur hobbyists, which Trebert and his colleagues have verified as being authentic audio from Russian soldiers. So you analysed hundreds of hours of audio and video footage then, and among the the things that you learned from that is is that this is an army struggling with communications and supplies, which is, you know, we've heard about that um, from reports, but we haven't heard it from their own mouths. Can you give us an example of some of the sorts of things that you've heard? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's a very good point. Like you hear it out of their own mouths, and it's very strong. It's not like you hear it like directly as they are experiencing it. So obviously, we talked in the beginning about the fuel and the, and the food and the water supplies that they're running out of. But in general, the communications are also just very hard. Um, we heard more than once that they're calling for air support because they're under fire, and the air support just doesn't come. And I don't want to use the words that they're using on air, but um, let's say they use a lot of expletives. They use a lot of swearing words to say you forgot about me the air support is not coming and one one segment is very uh, striking where we can actually hear one of the um, Russian units is um, reporting to one of his higher uh, uh, you know one of the officers or whatever um, saying like hey you know we're on the fire of all places like I, I don't know where to go and eventually it almost seems that he is crying or near to breaking down on the radio and he just doesn't see any way out anymore. So you can really, I mean, it's literally his voice and probably in, in, in complete distress saying he needs help, but he doesn't get it. So mm-hmm. these are just some of the examples which, which are just striking to hear of, of soldiers that have been sent to war and, 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 and may, have, may have been killed by now. From Wednesday's drive time. However, on yesterday's Morning Ireland, Gavin put this to Anton Barbashan, editorial director at Riddle Russia, in relation to comments from Britain's spy chief Jeremy Fleming of General Communications headquarters. Those comments by Jeremy Fleming, the GCHQ chief, in public, unusually at an event in Australia this week, including that Russian soldiers are refusing to carry out orders and are sabotaging their own equipment. How can we know if they're accurate or just Western propaganda? Well, we've had a lot of data on that since day one of the war. Okay, yeah, I mean, everything should be taken with a grain of salt because it is wartime, there's propaganda coming from all ends, but we've had a number of cases, confirmed cases of Russian soldiers deserting or 
um, basically uh, dropping their equipment somewhere in the fields of Ukraine and running away from there because they were not told where they're going. They didn't know that there's going to be a war and they don't want to participate in the war. They are afraid or they simply don't want to carry out those orders. But if the Russian military strategy is in trouble, who's willing to tell Vladimir Putin? Claire put this to Scott Lucas, associate at UCD's Clinton Institute and Professor Emeritus at the University of Birmingham. I'd also like you to, you to attempt to clear the fog around these reports from the US and the EU that Vladimir Putin was completely misled by all the yes-men around him who were afraid to tell him the truth about the war and how it was going. What should we take from that? Well, it's not just the US and the EU. It's also um, the director of the UK's uh, intelligence agency, GCHQ, who went on record with an Australian audience to said, yeah, that Vladimir Putin uh, had not only been misled into thinking that uh, there would be little Ukrainian resistance, that Ukrainians would welcome the Russians as liberators, and that Russian forces would be effective, but now that advisors are too scared to tell him that it's not going well. Uh, you know, I take it with a grain of salt. Certainly, it's in the interest of, of, the, of the US, Europe, and other supporters of Ukraine to play up uh, the Russian failures. But what we know and have confirmed is, is that the Russians have failed. They have failed in phase A uh, of this operation, which was to get into Kyiv capital quickly and to detain, possibly kill Ukraine's leaders. And we have multiple reports, including from NATO, of up to 20% of Russian, Russia's invasion force is now lost. Uh, we have up to 20% of the troops who have been killed, captured, or are missing in action. You have a loss of 300 tanks, which is equivalent to the entire tank force of France, half that of the UK. And I think the biggest confirmation that the Russians are scrambling, whether or not Vladimir Putin wants to accept this, is that they, in effect, have called off the assault on Kyiv and north of Kyiv and Chernihiv. They're now concentrating on the eastern part of Ukraine to try to grab as much yes. land as they can hold. Meanwhile, here at home on Tuesday, four Russian diplomats expelled from Ireland for activities which Minister Simon Coveney described as not in accordance with international standards of diplomatic behaviour. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Now, just what do you think is going on here? I bought it and tried it, tried it on and could not get it on me. I lay in the bed wriggling and everything else and <laughs> could not get it on. And I couldn't say to my children, who my children are like, for, 40s and 50s, I couldn't say to my children, I just have to spend 300 euro and I don't know what the hell I did that for. But anyway, my son arrived and he said, have you put it on yet? I said, I can't get into it. Anyway, he says, do the best you can and we'll see if we can haul you into it. So he hauled me into it and honestly, I was absolutely, I have low blood pressure. It was just as well because I can tell you if I had high blood pressure, I would have had a heart attack. <laughs> to the roof, yeah. Because I was, and so I was like this with plastic bags Slay in my alert, hands yeah. and plastic bags in my feet. That is Constance Short getting into her wetsuit. Rarely an edifying experience, let's face it. And she tweeted that at 77, she was taking up sea swimming, which had gotten quite the reaction online. Now, it's hard to believe there's nearly a million and a half people have responded to this. And there was only a one... Million and a half. Yeah, and only one weird one. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. One, but actually, it was somebody that I had followed because he was a sea swimmer or whatever, you know. And I now have become part of the sea swimming uh, fraternity. <laughs> yes. I, I, there are people that identify with me who uh, swim with sharks in Patagonia. <laughs> right. I've only got in the water once, like, do you know what I mean? So, 
<laughs> in black rock and Kelsey Mounds. So I'm having a bit of crackling, do you know what I mean? So, but one, one fellow, you know, I got this weird one said, oh, I think you're marvellous and I'd love to see you. You know what I mean? He was chatting me up like, do you know right, what I mean? Yeah. I said, I'm a bit long in the tooth and I blocked him then, you see. <laughs> He's not holding your togs. So a firm thanks, but no thanks. And all of this for her is the benefit of getting older. So you're you're seventy seven. Yes. Right. How does that feel? Like when you when you think back to being nineteen and being on well, that. But you see, it's interesting. Your mind thing. doesn't change. Mm. See, this is the thing that uh, it's interesting. I mean, I'm uh, the only thing is I don't fancy fellas anymore. Do you know not what at I mean? All. No, not at all. Right. I mean, I just uh, it doesn't attract me. You know, and I did fancy fellas a lot. You yeah. know, like people normally do. That's, and actually, that's nearly a liberation. You know, because it, it that actually got in the way of my life. I was forever falling in love with the wrong people. You know. <laughs> And, and actually, I've more, far more time to myself now than I ever had. <laughs> and don't try and soft soap her with any euphemisms. Yeah. So do you like to be referred to as elderly or older I, person? I or no, You don't give a damn, right? I okay. don't care. Yeah. See, and, and I actually feel strongly about that. Okay. I feel that we're pussyfooting around with the words we use okay. in many things. Yes. I mean, when I day, I day. I'm not, didn't pass away or <laughs> yeah. drift off into the ether. <laughs> you die, you know? yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'm a great believer in, in using the language we have. We don't need yeah. a whole, anyway. But of course, language evolves. That's the thing, you know. But of course, we, but I mean, but, 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 but there's nothing wrong with language. I'm not opposed to language evolving, but I'm, uh, I'm opposed to language that, that coats reality. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Constance Short with Ray. Now, it was a pretty big week for the Leaving Cert curriculum, lots of changes. But on Study Hub with Evelyn, these tips for the Irish Oral from comedian and one-time teacher, Julie Jay. Sharon, we're looking at a 25 from the mocks. It's not quite a pass, but let's see what we can do. Oh yes, I did get divorced over the summer. It's been hard, but I'm getting through it. Sorry, pet. what was it you were asking for? A pen. A pen is a pound. No, a phone is a ring. I thought you were asking about the ring. Not at all. It's an easy mistake to make. We've got the pen. We've got the divorce. Now let's get cracking. Question one. True or false? What do you think, Sharon? True or false? True. Okay, well, you're on the right track because the answer is false. The good news is that 25 doesn't include the oral. Just go in there, say your diagwits, cut us a thought through, throw in a couple of natters so they think you're from the grail tucked and before you can say Norm or Foley, you're at 85. For the orals now, remember, it's even lump badminton, but you hate geography with a passion. I know you're an only child, Sharon, but make sure to make up imaginary siblings because it gives you something to talk about. Let's keep it simple and call them Fwinilg, Cahir and Timpishta. As an uncle score, mention you want to be a teacher because they work so hard and that H1 is in the bag. Oh, way too much truth in that one. Now, to mark the stage adaptation of Circle of Friends, the rather amazing Maeve Binchy was celebrated on Bowman on Sunday. And this public rattlebag interview with Miles Dungan. Now, Maeve Binchy had gone to an all-girls school and had been taught by nuns, rather lovely nuns, she'd said. But they might have overpromised in one department. They were very, very nice, but they did fire us with the notion that there was lust. And one of them must have told me, because I couldn't have made it up myself, that the way God had arranged things was for the propagation of the species. That the propagation of the species wouldn't happen, because we were all dead lazy, we wouldn't bother propagating ourselves. <laughs> unless there was some mild pleasure attached to it. So some mild pleasure was attached to propagating ourselves. 
and he put into men an insatiable lust. <laughs> and he put into women something called holy purity, which was to <laughs> beat them back. So I came into these halls in UCD prepared, because I was very, very religious. I was prepared to beat back all this lust. And I was a bit disappointed there wasn't more of it, you know, <laughs> getting ready to, to, to beat it back. But I had a wonderful time. I was nervous that day. I can remember, I think every time I come up Earlsford Terrace, I think of that day of getting out. It's so strange, getting out at the station that we then called Westland Row, which is now Pierce Station, and coming into what we then called UCD, which is now the National Concert Hall. And everything has changed so much. But I can, that feeling of that day is still the same. Will I be all right? Will it be like, will going to university be like going to a, a dance or, or is it like a beauty competition where the race is going to be to the petite and the pretty and I'm, I'm going to have an awful time? And you know, by about two days, I discovered the blinding truth that fellas were like the rest of us. I mean, they were kind of normal and they just, you could have chats with them and you'd have beans and toast with them and chips in the cafe and you'd talk about the subjects you were doing and the match you'd be going to. And I had glorious four years here. I did a, a H-dip as well uh, to be a teacher. I was very happy. And it's worth remembering just how successful she was. 40 million books sold. So plaudits from the more literary establishment didn't really bother her. So I often have people saying to me, and they say it as a compliment, and I take it as a compliment. People said to me, over and over. Do you know, Maeve, my daughter is illiterate. She reads absolutely nothing and she loves your books. Thank you, that. Oh, that is brilliant. And more Maeve when her husband and fellow author Gordon Snell joined Brendan. But just listen to how gingerly Brendan tiptoes into this one. Like even being here now and talking about her as the custodian and ambassador for her work, do you mind being, and you still are despite her, her being dead 10 years, you're still kind of Maeve's husband, aren't you, in a way? Oh, very much so. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. And you're happy to, to be, be here talking about her. Like, do, I wonder, do you ever think or did you ever think uh, in the past, well, I'm a writer too, you know, could we talk a bit more <laughs> about me? Oh, never. We never thought that. We were always very... Uh, evenly matched, if you like. And, and since we worked in different uh, aspects of, of, of literature, I, I write children's books and song lyrics, and she was writing novels and short stories. So, And we would read each other's work uh, to each other at the end of the day, which was a, a very a great treat to hear where, yeah. how the work was going. If, occasionally, you might be slightly critical of, say, a character, or in my case, of, of a rhyme in a verse. Um, we had this rule, which I've, we've talked about before, of sulking time, that you were allowed 10 minutes to go away and sulk if somebody, if there was a criticism. Yeah. And then you had to come back and either say, uh, well, I think you may have a point, I, I might change that, or else, no, I think it's all right as it is. But the sulking time was a good rule, I'd recommend it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and, and did Maeve sulk? It's hard to picture her... Sulking. No, she never sulked. Yeah, she yeah. never sulked. So sulking time was mainly <laughs> for you, was it? Sulking time was to sulk on your own. I see, yeah. yeah. And you can only envy the ease of their relationship and the joy. Um, was it great fun being with Maeve? It was great fun. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, uh, unbelievable fun, really. We had marvellous times, uh, both uh, on book tours, which we did a lot of, which was great fun. 
to different countries, America, Canada, and Australia particularly. It was a lot of fun. I mean, she was incredibly witty, and she she said she hated puns, but she she made some of the best puns I've ever heard. She had an idea of the song of the of the childless eagle, which was no no regrets. <laughs> Gordon Snell with Brendan. Sunday. Census time. And Katrina Crow joined Katie on Late Debate with a little history. Well, censuses are always to do with the government control. And that the original censuses, which go back 4,000 years to Babylon, believe it or not, were about taxes, as were the Roman and Greek censuses and all the other ones since, more or less. So it's about counting the population to see how much tax the government can collect. It's become, of course, vastly more complicated and interesting than that since it first began. The first census here is a bit of a one in 1813, a more full-blown one in 1821, uh, a bit of a half-arsed one in 1831, and a very good and professional one, both in in Ireland and in Britain. And, of course, we were part of the United Kingdom in 1841, uh, which is professionalised. And one of the census commissioners here in 1841 was Sir William Wilde, the father of Oscar Wilde. He had a big interest in epidemiology and disease, so he, he asked questions about that and thus gave us a very interesting picture of illness and sickness and mortality in Ireland before the famine. After that, it proceeds at as, as 10 yearly intervals uh, until 1911. There was supposed to be a census in 1921, but of course there couldn't be because the enumerators would have been killed by the IRA as being um, <clears throat> representatives agents of the, of the state. government, the agents of the state. We don't want that to happen to our lovely enumerators. So the next one after that was 1926. What survives of all of our lovely censuses are, alas... In, in full, only the, before 1922, the 1901 and 1911 census, the last census to be taken under the British administration here. And I had the privilege and good fortune to be able to put those online almost 20 years ago in the National Archive. Now that is fascinating, but this particular census has a quirk all of its own. All the talk in our house is what are we going to put into that last box? the uh, time capsule. I know. Well, can I urge people to put the names of their pets into that box because they're not included on the census form. <laughs> and one of the most glorious discoveries made in 1911 was Tatters Cullen, a dog aged three who was born in County Longford, living in Blessington Street uh, with a very awkwardly mobile working class family with daughters trained to be typewriters, as they called them then, and uh, bookbinders and so on. And Tatters was put in because they loved Tatters. Tatters was the name of the dog in the shock raw on Diane Boussicot's great melodrama that everyone was going to see in Dublin. So I'd say there were many more Tatters. But it would be great to get the names of pets into the census. Not everyone would do it, but it would be nice if we had a fair hour of sprinkling in 100 years' time to cheer everybody up. So I'm going to have a good old rant for myself. I no longer have a pet, but I'm going to name my previous pet, who was a beautiful cat called Sugar Plum, who died some years ago, uh, just so that she lives into posterity. Cats by the name of Francis will be recorded. That is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.